0: I'd like for everybody to take out something that you can write with, take something out that you can write with, a program and a pen, uh, grab your phone, I- iPad, whatever, something that you can write down uh, an answer to this question that I'm about to ask. I, I want this to be in our heads, and our minds as we open the text today. Here's the question. What could God do in your life personally, in your life right now, that could give you greater sense of certainty that God is real, that the gospel is true, and that your eternity is secure. That God do in your life right now personally, that you, you might know he is more real, that, that your faith might be more sure, more, more certain. No, no limits to your answer, no no boundaries on this question I want you to take just a minute and think about it. Wherever you are, wherever you are in relationship with God, whatever comes to your mind. You may be in a place right now where where you doubt God exists. You're really struggling with doubt and and questions. And maybe there's something that God could do to to answer that doubt or to answer those questions. Maybe in a place where where you feel isolated or rejected or alienated or, or abandoned place where you're facing difficult pain, sickness, grief, or loss. place where you're in a difficult, uh, hurtful relationship or uh, uh, finances are, are incredibly hard right now. You need a job. There's nothing left in the bank account. What could God do for you right now to, to show that he's there? Now maybe you're in a place where you're pretty certain that God exists and, and all that's true. It's good and, and, and right. He is good and, and, and true and trustworthy. And, but, but, you know, if, if he could just do this, then it would be absolute slam dunk. Like no shadow of a doubt if, if he could do that for me. Would you take just a minute and answer the question? Okay, got it. Over the last year, my daughter Emma and I have had some great conversations about this, about uh, life and death, about eternity, uh, about doubts and, and questions. And not long ago, we, we sat out and we answered this same question, this the same question that I just asked, asked you. And interestingly, a 10-year-old girl and a 38-year-old almost man, these, we, we answered the question the, the exact same way. We said this, if we could see Jesus with our own eyes. If he'd show up on earth, if we could see him, if we could talk to him, if we could ask him questions, you know, dinner on the patio over at Chewy's with Jesus. If we could do that, then our faith would be more sure, be more certain. Maybe you answered it similarly, maybe. Maybe you said something very tangible in in your life right now. Whatever it is, I want you to take it. I want you to keep it in front of you. Keep it in your mind. We're going to come back to it at the end of the message. So let's take out our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. Lloyd mentioned last week that the story we pick up today, it illustrates a principle and it's this. It's that wealth does not equal righteousness. And the Pharisees, what do they believe? They believe that outward appearance, external action, prosperity, that demonstrates righteousness. Jesus says, no, wealth does not equal righteousness. And I'm going to illustrate it with a story, with a parable. You might remember Lloyd overviewed the parable that we'll look at today. There, there, there's a poor man who dies and goes to heaven. Rich man who dies and goes to hell. And in the parable, we'll see that this rich man makes the same gargantuan mistake that the Pharisees made. And that is that he misunderstood the purpose of the law and the prophets. He misunderstood what we now know as the Old Testament. And as we dive deeper into this detail of the story, we'll see that that not only does he misunderstand the purpose of the law, but he goes a step further to make a second fatal mistake. And that is that the rich man misunderstands the nature of genuine saving faith. And Jesus illustrates it for the Pharisees and for us because there is nothing more important than getting these two things right. In fact, our eternal destination is. Depends upon it. It it really is a little bit of a strange text. It could it it could freak you out. It's it's kind of like what uh, what God does in Job, where 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 He pulls back the curtain and we see the inner workings of angels and demons. In this, God pulls back the veil, so to speak, and, and we see beyond the physical world to the spiritual world, to life after death, to life in eternity. And there's spiritual realities that are as real as physical realities, but, but we just can't see them, at, at least not yet. Verses 19 through 22, the first section, they, they happen in the physical realm on planet Earth. Two men live and die. The second part of the passage where the more weighty part of the passage is, is 23 through 31. And, and those verses happen in the spiritual realm. And this is where Jesus pulls back the curtain that we might see what happens after death. And what happens in the spiritual scene is that the rich man, he, he makes two desperate requests. And in the first request, we learn some things about hell. And in the second request, we learn some things about the nature of genuine saving faith. So let's start with the physical realm of the story. Look with me beginning in verse 19. We'll read to 22. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. That, that reference there to, to Abraham's bosom is, is proverbial. It, it's the sense that, that this man died and, and sat, he reclined at the table with Abraham. It's a similar phrase when, when John's with Jesus at the Last Supper. He reclined at the table with Jesus. So we can imagine this banquet, this celebration, this feast... That that Abraham and Lazarus are having together in heaven. Here's the picture of the story. Two men, they live on earth who have absolutely nothing in common. One is rich, extravagantly rich, If you were affluent, if you were of the elite class in first century Judaism, you wore all white. That's that's what you wore. That demonstrated your eliteness. This man wore all purple, whole different stratosphere. Purple, most expensive dye. Purple, the most lavish luxury. And under his purple robe, he wore white linen undergarments. We know those are from Egypt. These are the finest Egyptian threads. I'm, I'm sure designed by... Calvin Klein, he's he's got him on. He he's working it. He this guy is fashionista to the nth degree. When Jesus says that, that he lived in splendor every day, it's talking about the food at his table. Is talking about how this rich man ate. and In fact, there's stories about King Agrippa II who would have these lavish feasts, these banquet-style feasts, royalty in, in, the, in the throne, in the kingdom, and invite all his friends. Not, not unlike the, the feast that we read about just a couple of weeks ago with the father and the younger son. Younger son returns home, and what does the father say? Kill the fatted calf. Invite all your friends. This is worthy of a banquet, of a celebration. And what Jesus says about the rich man is that that's the way he ate three meals a day every single day. Extravagant luxury. We we can picture this if we're just gonna say it in short. The rich man is a self-indulgent lover of money just like the Pharisees. And the contrast with Lazarus is striking, isn't it? Contrast with the poor man is striking. He, he's lying at the gate of, of the rich man. He, he, he's disabled. He can't stand up. He can't walk. He's been carried there by his friends. He, he's not covered in the finest clothes. No, he, he's covered in sores because he's sick and in pain. And he's laying there hopeful for some act of compassion, some small act of kindness from the rich man as he walks out the gate and back in the gate every day, just, just that the rich man might give him some crumbs from the table, from the feast, crumbs, just little morsels of food that, that the rich man would never miss anyway. And what's interesting here is that all Lazarus gets is a pack of dogs. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for 17 years and a great scholar on the culture and history, said that, that when we hear leftovers from the table, and when a Middle Easterner hears dogs, he would immediately think that these would be guard dogs of the gated estate, they're guard dogs of the rich man. And the guard dogs, they are the ones who ate the leftovers from the table, they were well fed. And to add insult to injury, these well-fed dogs are coming to Lazarus and licking his open wounds. It, it's gross. It's unclean. And the Pharisees listening to Jesus in the story, they, 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 would, have looked, they would have looked at the story. They would have said, Lazarus... Clearly unclean, clearly suffering from divine punishment and clearly headed toward hell. And Look at the rich man and they'd say outward appearance, external, self-righteousness. Clearly this man's wealth demonstrates his righteousness and he is headed for heaven. But, but Jesus turns the tables, doesn't he? The exact opposite happens. Poor man dies, goes to heaven, Rich man dies, he goes to hell. And this is where we shift from the physical realm to, to men lived and died to the spiritual realm of the story. The rich man makes two desperate requests. And we see them beginning in verse 23, and I'll read to 31. Look there with me. In Hades, rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I'm in agony in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now here he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, rich man, then I beg you, Father Abraham, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment." But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, rich man, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. Abraham said to him, "If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. I want to start here before we look at the first request, it's, It's something that's so obvious in the text, but I think we can tend to skim over. It's simply this. Death is not the end. You see that? Death is not the end. Death is inevitable. It it comes for all, but it does not mean that we cease to exist. It's not the termination of life. In fact, it is the, the starting point. It's the point at which our eternal state begins, our physical life, however many years God gives us on this planet Earth, does not compare to spiritual eternity. It doesn't compare to our state forever that everyone in this room and everyone who has walked the earth will experience. The point is simply this, this this life is not all there is. And, and to think otherwise is tragic, it's fatal. So beginning with death as a starting point, we look at this spiritual scene and we see the rich man's first request. He says, Father Abraham, send, send Lazarus that he might just dip his finger in water, just a taste of water to soothe my burning tongue. It's hot, I'm experiencing something. Would you send him and give me relief? Have mercy upon me in my position. Would you do that? First question we have to answer is, Is why Father Abraham? And the answer to that question is found in Genesis 12. God makes a covenant with Abraham that that he will make him a great nation, that his descendants will be more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the shores of the seas. He he will be the father of God's chosen people, Israel. And and so this guy says, Father Abraham, literally translated, my father Abraham, because he is Jewish. But that's a problem. You, You see, the rich man believed that because he was a physical descendant of Abraham because he was of the right race, because he was of the right ethnicity, then he would have a spiritual relationship with Abraham for eternity. But that's not the case. Romans 4 says that Abraham is is the father of all who believe. Yes, he's the father of the nation, but he's not just the father of the nation. In eternity, Father Abraham is the father of spiritual believers. Rich man is not a spiritual believer. That's why he doesn't spend eternity with him. And then we learn some things certainly about, about the man. We, we learn some things certainly about what he believed, but, but we learn now some, some things about hell, don't we? And the first is this, it's just simple. Hell is a very real place. I don't know any other way to say it than, than real people go to a real hell. Not imaginary, not metaphorical, it's not allegorical. This very real place is a place of physical torment and emotional anguish. You can hear it in the language of the rich man I'm in Torment. I'm experiencing torment in the separation. You are far away. The, the flame puts me in agony. My tongue is hot. You can hear the emotional anguish in the separation. You can hear the, the physical pain in his experience. Hell is a very real place of emotional anguish and physical pain. In Luke 13, uh, Luke writes that in hell people experience weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Deep, deep emotional pain and the weeping. Certainly physical pain is demonstrated in the gnashing of teeth. And, and then we learn this. We, we, we learn that not only is hell a real place, but, but hell has no exit. It's permanent. It's fixed. It's irre- irreversible. Abraham describes this chasm between that is uncrossable. He can't get from hell to heaven, can't get from heaven to, to hell there's no exit. And then finally we learn that hell is the result of choices we make today. It's the result of decisions in this life. that The rich man knows who Abraham is. Been to the synagogue. He's, he's listened to God's covenant with Abraham. He, he's heard the, the story read, the truth of God's word read, and taught the, the rich man knows who Lazarus is. Notice he's the guy that was laying at his gate. He, he recognizes him in eternity. And what we come to realize is that, that, that what this man did with these two men, with, with what he heard taught about Abraham and how he practically engaged with Lazarus, demonstrated a heart of unbelief. He demonstrated a heart that was actually not righteous, externally righteous, maybe not, not internally righteous, And so we find that he believed actually that his nationality, his outward appearance, that that's what would guarantee his acceptance into heaven when it had absolutely nothing to do with it at all. His outward actions only demonstrated, only reflected his inward unbelief. And we're not immune. You know, we're not. Many in the Bible Belt, many in Nashville, many in the church at large, many in this church who believe, a genuine believe this, that, that, that believe that, that, that because we, we, we go to church, and because we, we have the right religious friends, because I grew up in the right family, because I'm a part of the right denomination, because I don't have any grievous sins in my life, because I've lived by some moral standard, we, we believe that, that that is what qualifies us for heaven. It scares me to death. Because if that's all that we're relying on, we're, we're not going to heaven. We're not. In fact, we'll spend eternity separated from God. And so we think what qualifies us, it doesn't. It, it actually doesn't. It, nothing to do with our ability to be righteous. Everything to do with our faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I've been around Nashville, the Bible Belt, South and the church long enough to to say that I believe the church is in trouble. I, I genuinely believe that. But we can avoid hell, can't we? We, we, we can avoid hell. And we, we, we avoid hell when we understand the rich man's second request. And certainly when we understand Abraham's response. Look at this dialogue in verse 27. The rich man's request, a, a sin then would you send Lazarus to my house to warn my brothers so they don't end up in the same place I am? And Abraham says, not necessary. They they already have the, the law and the prophets. They already have Moses and the prophets. Richman says, No, Abraham. You don't understand? Well, the law and the prophets, not enough. If if you send Lazarus back from the dead, that, that that will be enough. Abraham responds again. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone returns to them from the dead. In the rich man's first request, we learn something about hell. In this request, we learn something about faith, the kind of faith that keeps us from hell. Rich man's concerned about his brother's he 's concerned about their future, but he misses the point he He makes the same mistake the Pharisees make, demanding from Jesus a sign it, If a dead man could go back, if my brothers could see a dead man walking, then they would repent of their ways, then they would understand forgiveness and and righteousness and what does Abraham say to them? no, they wouldn 't, and we know abraham 's right. How do we know that abraham 's right well. Because Jesus died, rose from the grave, and returned. And what do the Pharisees do? They don't believe him. They try to cover it up. Why? Because they don't understand the purpose of the law and the prophets. They don't understand that the purpose of the law and the prophets is, is not to prove their righteousness. It's to demonstrate that they are not righteous. That they're sinners in need of a savior. And if they don't understand that, then nothing will Persuade them. And and then, in fact, Jesus says just the law and the prophets are enough. Just the Old Testament is enough. Enough for what? Enough for genuine saving faith. Enough to prove that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. Enough to be certain, to be sure that God is real, that the gospel is true. That my eternity is secure. Go, go back to the question we asked at the beginning of the service. Go, go back to your answer to the question. What, what could God do for you right now that would give you greater certainty? What, what, would God do, what could God do right now that would make your faith more sure? What, what could God do that would be enough for you? Jesus says nothing. Nothing more than he's already done. We hold in our hands. We hold in our hands more than enough for faith. In fact, Jesus says this. He says, just half the book is enough. Just Genesis through Malachi. Just Moses and the prophets. But we, we have so much more than that. We have the, the testimony of John the Baptist. We have the teaching of Jesus. We have the apostles' letters. We have the, the narrative account of the resurrection of Jesus. We have more than enough to be certain, to be sure. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, unbelievable chapter in the scripture. Some 30 years after Peter ha- has experienced uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, he describes it. He says, I was there, James and John. I was on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus Christ was transformed. I saw him in his brilliance as God. Uh, uh, Moses and Elijah are there. They've returned from the dead and are talking to Jesus. We know who Moses and Elijah represent, right? The law and the prophets. And Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah the great prophet, they're there talking to Jesus and Peter hears the voice of God. God the Father who speaks, this is my beloved son, my chosen one. He is Messiah. He is Savior of the world. I I was there. It was incredible. Guess what? It doesn't compare to God's prophetic word. What? It doesn't compare to the scripture. My experience, what I heard, what I saw, it doesn't compare to Scripture. Why? Because the Scripture contains the transfiguration and so much more. But Bill, if I could have just been on that mountain with Peter if I could have just seen what he saw, heard what he heard, if I could have just been there and and, and heard the voice of God, seen the law and the prophets represented in real people back from the dead, if if I could just see Jesus, if if I could just have lunch with him today at Chewy's, if if I could just have this very tangible experience, or if he would just show up in my life in a very tangible way, what, what does Peter say? Gosh, experience was indescribable. Uh, the voice of God was awesome. Doesn't compare to God's word. God's word is enough. God's word is sufficient. Seeing is not believing. Reading God's word is. And so I'll just ask this question: Is our so what? Will will you open it and read it? Will you in your own life, will, will you open it and, and hear it? You see, the, the word for here in verse 29 doesn't mean just that, that the words shake my eardrums, doesn't mean that I just listen to it at church. It, it means that, that I believe it and obey it. That, that's what it means. It means that I take it as true, that I trust it, that it, that it renews my mind it penetrates my heart. It, it, it shapes my perspective. It, it's that I receive it into my life and obey it, not because I'm trying to earn something or get accepted into heaven, but I obey it because of what Jesus Christ has already done. He, he's proven himself righteous, so I respond to it. And both the rich man and, and Lazarus, they, they listen to the word of God taught in the synagogue. One man goes to heaven. Other goes to hell. Only conclusion that we can draw is that one man truly heard it. One man believed it. One man allowed the truth to prove him a sinner in need of a Savior. One man experienced the grace. One man experienced the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit who helped him grow, who helped him understand what he heard, who who helped him survive each day in painful suffering. Please know this. Even as a teaching pastor... Even though I desire exactly what I'm speaking to be true about my own life and the word, it isn't. There are times I read it and there are times I don't. Times it refreshes my soul, my gosh, unbelievably. And times it it just feels like dry toast. Times I can't wait to open it. Times I can't wait to to close it. I'll tell you this, having tried to remain faithful to it over a long period of time, I, I would tell you today... I cannot do without it, even, even with all those things true. I, I, I can't, I can't, the understanding, the application of my own life, I am different because I've read God's revelation to us. Ask my wife, I'm changed in a good way, mostly. I am. Yeah, I, I can tell you this I can tell you that every time I open it, I'm convicted of the sin of my own life, I'm reminded of my need for a Savior. That used to haunt me. Now it gives me great freedom. I can tell you that I'm more certain today that God's real, that the gospel's true, that my eternity is secure than I was 10 years ago or five years ago or honestly, even last month. I can tell you that I'm a better father. Why? Because I, I understand, I can appreciate the eternal father's love for me different because God's word is true and so my plea for you this morning is that you would open it not just read it not just listen to it but hear it because no matter where you are today no matter what's true about your life today you are not in the position of the rich man after death none of you we're all still breathing at least not yet we're not so open it Read it and allow God's truth that is more than enough leads you to faith. Faith that is sure and faith that is certain. In all the parables, uh, there's only one character named. It's, it's this one, it's Lazarus. Significant. All the other parables, everybody's anonymous. The sower and the Pharisee and the uh, elder brother, younger brother, the father, all, all anonymous. Not this one, no, th- this This character's name is Lazarus. And Lazarus has a very important meaning. Lazarus means the one whom God helps. See, you and I are not responsible for understanding what we read and what we hear. We're not. Not responsible for comprehending it. That's the role of the Spirit of God. Responsible to be faithful to it, responsible to open it, responsible to grow in it and Bible study methods and own it and learn about it. We're, We're not responsible to comprehend it. The one who's responsible to help us comprehend it is the one whom helps. He helps Lazarus and he helps us until the day that we too are carried away by the angels to spend eternity with him.